Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Combustion technology. It powers our lives, moves our machines, pollutes our planet, and kills our people. It's a technology of death. But what if implosions, the opposite of explosions, held the answers to clean and free energy? This was the idea that inspired Austrian inventor Victor Schauberger. Victor Schauberger's motto was to observe and copy nature. He did a lot of that in the forests of Austria where he grew up. He observed beautiful meandering rivers and was inspired by the spiraling vortices within them. He saw that nature uses this powerful vortex spiral movement everywhere, from tornadoes to hurricanes, black holes, and even plant growth. It all uses this spiraling vortex movement, and this is nature's mechanism for transforming energy from one level to another. He found the spiral implosion to be a principal creative movement of the universe, and it became the core of his research and design. He saw the difference between the natural implosive suction movement and the explosive pressure movement of modern technology. Nature's inward implosion movement has a cooling, friction-reducing, consolidating effect. While modern combustion technology moves in an outward motion, it creates heat, friction, is noisy, inefficient, and destructive and it can only lead to destruction. The implosion principles were the basis for a number of his machines, including the trout turbine. This machine was inspired by watching trout swim effortlessly upstream in a river. He used his observations to design the machine to produce energy by directing air and water through spiral-shaped pipes and transforming it into a highly energized state from which the energy could then be released. He was producing reactions at an atomic level, which is comparable to atomic fusion. He was even quoted as saying, one can make use of atomic power through the biotechnology of implosion. These implosive principles are in contrast to the destructive explosive principles of nuclear fission. Few images convey nature's wholesomeness so well as that of a babbling mountain stream. At each stone, the water whirls and draws in air. The water breathes. In the spiraling of water, the Austrian natural scientist Victor Schauberger recognized a basic form of movement in nature. His aim was to imitate the spinning movement in technical devices and thus produce naturally inclined, environmentally friendly energy. (laughs) 
Schauberger developed revolutionary propulsion units with which, for example, aeroplanes are not pushed but drawn forward. Victor's son, Walter Schauberger, searched for a mathematical formula to explain his father's findings. He designed a funnel based on the hyperbolic spiral in which the stream of falling water formed a dramatic spiral pattern. Seen from above, it looks like a spiral nebula in space. Further down in the hyperbolic Schauberger funnel, the pulsating double helix reminds us of the DNA spiral. A coincidence? The turbulence creates a stable pulsating structure out of swirling chaos. A pattern of natural self-organization there for us to understand and then copy in Victor Schauberger's view. Faithful to the silent forests was the maxim of his ancestors. Victor Schauberger was born on the 30th of June, 1885, son of a forest superintendent. The house where he was born in Holzla, in the Mühlviertel region of Upper Austria. Victor attended forestry school and graduated in 1904. In remote districts, Victor could observe the woods in all peace areas as yet untouched by humans. His observations over many years in this natural environment crucially shaped his later life's work. From early on, the forester turned his attention to the mountain streams and to the trout in them. Victor Schauberger recognized that the fish do not only swim against the stream, but that the water itself can flow in opposite directions. He himself started to go against the tide of current doctrine. Simple forester that he was, Victor, here with his wife Maria and son Walter, was soon to astonish the scholars. The border between Austria and the Czech Republic runs not far from the house where he was born on the edge of the Böhmerwald Gud. Over many kilometers, the Schwarzenberger Schwemmkanal marks the national border. In Victor's youth, wood was transported down this stream to the Danube, where it was loaded onto ships. However, the channel could not carry entire tree trunks, but only logs. Victor Schauberger was to become well known for his logging flumes with a much greater carrying capacity. This small pond is what remains of a storage lake. A few years ago, it was still full of water, Lake Taschel. And 80 years ago, innumerable felled trunks floated in it, especially in the spring. In 1929, a documentary was filmed here. The forester Schauberger used his knowledge of the powers inherent in water to build a modern logging flume in the Mertz Valley in Green Styria. 
approaching the weir from the valley. Beneath the intake gate, a steep chute accelerates the departing timber. In man-made channels, heavy trunks floated down to the valley, even logs heavier than water. How was this possible? The first intermediate dam is reached. Due to the fact that cold water carries better than warm, the water that's been warmed up by sunlight, velocity and frictional force along the way has to be replaced by new cold water. Today, there are only ruins left from the intermediate dam. But Victor Schauberger became well known for his logging flumes far beyond the Austrian borders. Similar log chutes were built to his designs in former Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. It is not documented whether this man with the flowing beard is actually Victor. Final destination, the sorting plant in Neuburg on the Mutz, another little marvel. The big trunks slide over a drop and the smaller ones fall through. The lumber plant at Neuberg on the Murz is going to be partly rebuilt for demonstration purposes. This is worthwhile because, as a construction for water regulation, it was unique in the world. In the only sound document of Victor Schauberger's from the year 1955, he explains the most important underlying principle. But what did Victor mean by moving in a certain way? His grandson, Jörg Schauberger, offers further details. These logging flumes all meandered down to the valley. There were further structures along the way which swirled the water within the channels. This enabled the water to carry even heavier loads. Many people have tried to build similar structures, but my grandfather's logging flumes were the only ones that really worked. Victor Schauberger received many patents for aspects of his logging flumes, as well as for natural watercourse regulation devices. and for the guide vanes that divert the water into the middle of the river, preventing damage to the banks. In the Pythagoras Kepler School in Bad Ischl, Victor's grandson Jörg and his wife Ingrid have held numerous courses and workshops on the topic, the nature and movement of water. <laughs> In his own way, Victor Schauberger analyzed the meandering movement of a natural watercourse and described it in detailed drawings. His conclusions are valid for all rivers. However, Victor's unorthodox proposals for regulation of the Rhine and Danube were ignored by the experts. Even on a smooth window pane, water doesn't flow straight down, but starts to meander. A pulsating space curve develops. According to Schauberger, a river doesn't just flow, but winds itself forward. 
A river rotates in its bed. Put simply, it swirls. In the bends, the current is fiercest, ripping up and grinding the boulders in its bed. In Victor's words, the river chews up its stones. The minerals contained in them are food for the water. When the turbulence diminishes, the sediments slowly settle down again. Where the river deposits the most, a ford is formed. Now the river starts to curve the other way round and accelerates its space curve until the next opposite bend appears. Victor Schauberger called this alternation between the left and right hand curves with fords in between a curve or river generator. The Swedish engineer Olaf Alexanderson, now 90 years old, published the first book about Victor Schauberger in the 1970s. He is still investigating the river generator. And then I said to myself, if a charge has built up here, then maybe it can be measured with an ammeter. And then I inserted a copper plate here, which was firmly soldered to a cable, and here another plate. I used a copper cable about 10 meters long. I got a registration. Here I had a pulsating direct current. It was a generator. I also measured in a straight stream, and there it was very bad. It was like a dead river. There were long stretches that had no charge at all. According to Schauberger, temperature variations are crucial for the energy processes in a watercourse. Even the slightest differences in temperature cause the different layers in the water to flow faster or slower. The water rubs against itself, bringing about ripples and vortices. A positive consequence is that the river slows itself down. In 1930, the Austrian Academy of Sciences confirmed the receipt of a sealed envelope entitled Turbulence. In it, Schauberger described his theory about the interdependence of water temperature and movement. The Academy kept the document under seal for 50 years. A confession that the time was not yet ripe for unlettered Schauberger and his practical perceptions from nature. Thanks to the distinguished work of the Styrian hydraulic engineer Ottmar Grober, this has since changed. Here we have a riverbank that was protected massively against floods. But Viktor Schauberger said one regulates a river through itself from its centre. Normally, hydraulic engineers shore up the riverbanks with stones. Grober does it differently and, incidentally, more cost-effectively. He places the boulders in a river, like here in the Salza. The stones are deposited to form a chute. And then, Grober had the idea of building an even larger chute in the longest river in Styria, the Moor. The rocks, each weighing a couple of tons, are mechanically placed into the riverbed at low water. 
Gorber is a professional and monitors the position of the rocks with a GPS. The rocks have to be accurately placed if the chute is going to fulfill its purpose of drawing the water away from the banks to the center of the stream. This chute was designed and built with unconventional methods in that it is the first scheme to be built from the inside out to direct the energy from the banks towards the middle. That means that I don't have to destroy or disturb the banks at all, as all of the work is done in the river itself. Building the channel not only stabilizes the banks, but also improves the water quality. Gruber doesn't see himself as a river manager, but rather as a river liberator. His chute accelerates the water in the middle of the stream. The riverbed is then eroded by the increased flow velocity in the middle, and this again results in uneven depths in the middle of the river. And so the large hoochen, also called the Danube salmon, which live here, are able to find a habitat that corresponds to the needs of their species. That means different water depths with different flow velocities. At normal water levels, the boulders are no longer visible. The funnel-shaped current, though, is recognizable. At low water, the channel becomes clearly visible. Shortly after the construction, Gorba had the current measured with a hydrometric vein apparatus. Further measurements were taken by Graz University of Technology. The measurement data ended up with Christina Zindela at the Institute of Hydraulic Engineering and Water Resources Management. She is a mathematician and, as part of her doctoral thesis, is working on the complex flow conditions in Grober's hydraulic constructions. We have completed several trials and noted the changes to the riverbed. Here you can see a cross-section before the construction of the channel. You can see that it's pretty even. After the installation of the channel and after a tremendous flood, the riverbed changed like this. You see here very strong dynamics within the riverbed. In this area, potholes were formed that are very good for the fish because here they find calm resting places. And what is more, the riverbank stayed sound so it was safe from the flood water. The profile of the Moor riverbed after it has been changed by the channel now looks like a natural river profile, as drawn by Victor Schauberger in the 30s. Christina Zindela does not just sit at the computer. Here she takes precise measurements at another of Ottmar Gorba's river construction sites. In the Stubmingbach brook, he built a kind of stairway, a pendulum channel a new building method for managing a steep gradient in which the sections of the riverbed restore its original swinging movement to the water. With floods, it swirls inwards, and instead of the swinging movement, it develops a flowing plume, a plat of water. That means that I have a convex flow pattern, Contrary to the conventional chutes, where you have a concave flow profile that attacks the banks on its edges. 
This is going to be tested now at the Hydraulic Engineering Laboratory of Graz University of Technology with a 1 to 10 scale model. It is 3 meters wide and 18 meters long. After it is built, there will be a series of tests, for example, flood simulation. For the first time, Schauberger's methods for the regulation of flowing water are going to be subjected to sophisticated tests at the renowned Institute of Hydraulic Engineering. The head of the institute is Professor Gerald Zenz. We would like to find out more about nature, especially nowadays, when we attach particular importance to the natural environment, to natural water runoff, and we have a specific scientific interest in considering energy flow. And so we are completely in tune with Schauberger when we say we want to find out how nature works. We want to study and learn about different volumes of water, its effect on the stability of the riverbed. Can we let different quantities of water generate energy in a controlled way? As engineers, it's our job to make things safe so that even with floods there is no danger. The river and its banks are not damaged and the population is safe. In practice, the pendular chute has already proved itself. The tests on the scale model are to give us a sound scientific basis, not least for the construction of more new channels. On the Großen Tulln, near the Wienerwald in Neulenkbach, an old weir system is to be replaced by a pendular chute as part of the restoration project. This will enable the fish to move freely through the waters again. And at the same time, a forest is planned on the floodplain. And in this alluvial forest, a Viktor Schauberger Park is to be established. A pendulous chute in a Schauberger Park would be the crowning achievement of Ottmar Grober's professional career. Here, he analyzes the electromagnetic frequencies in the water of the pendulous chute with a new measuring instrument. Different aspects of his hydraulic engineering measurements have already been the subject of theses at the Graz and Braunschweig University of Technology. The time finally appears to be ripe for a Schauberger-style river regulation system. Very early in his career as a forester, Victor Schauberger recognized the great significance of the woodland in the never-ending water cycle. According to Schauberger, temperature differences play a crucial role in this process. In the shade of trees, the forest soil stays relatively cool. When warm rainwater hits the cooler soil, it sinks into the ground more easily, replenishes the water table and comes back up to the Earth's surface some time later. It evaporates, clouds form and then rains down again. Schauberger calls this the complete or full water cycle. But the full cycle is increasingly disrupted, for example by forest clearance. Without the tree covering, the ground is now warmer than the rain falling onto it. The rainwater does not penetrate into the ground, but flows along the surface into brooks and rivers, causing floods. On the other hand, the water table sinks. In summer, this surface water often evaporates from there, causing clouds to form, and so leading to more rainfall. 
One flood leads to the next. Schauberger calls this the half-water cycle. On a hot plate, it can be seen in a dramatic demonstration how the drops of water roll off. In a similar way, it can also be observed on hot asphalt. Today, this is known as the problem of sealing of natural surfaces. Today, basically, water goes through only half of the water cycle. It can no longer penetrate into the ground, stay there and regenerate. Viktor Schauberger wanted to solve this problem mechanically and so developed a machine for the production of spring water-like drinking water. In 1935, he obtained a patent for it. In this machine, the water would go through the whole cycle again, the water is cleaned, cooled down, run through vortices, enriched with minerals, and then it comes out of the machine like fresh spring water, like the water we know from our mountains. Victor Schauberger believed that without a healthy woodland, there is no healthy water, which he called the blood of the earth. The shade-giving canopy of natural mixed woodlands allows an incomparable variety of species to flourish in the understory. A thick humus layer develops. A good woodland soil is a good water reservoir. It can retain up to 90% of the rainwater that falls upon it and so dramatically reduces the risk of flooding and erosion. A healthy woodland soil can absorb six times more water than bare ground. The cooling shade of the trees is just as important for a river. If humans do not interfere, the shade providers grow by themselves on the riverbanks. Victor Schauberger was probably one of the first people to talk of the dying forests. As early as the 1920s, he warned about radical deforestation and the replanting of trees in plantation monoculture. It is a tragic consequence of Victor's life's work that his ingenious water channels led to the massive deforestation that took place in Austria and elsewhere. If one cuts a swathe into the wood, then the trees which were previously in the middle of the wood immediately become border trees. They are suddenly exposed to direct sunlight and their bark gets scorched. These border trees are badly damaged. This was a problem that Victor Schauberger also described. Is it a coincidence that the soil is dry at the edge of this wood? As with river regulation, Schauberger's insights into forestry are more relevant than ever. From forestry, it is only a small step to agriculture. Victor Schauberger saw a cause of declining yields in agricultural machinery made of iron. Basically, Victor considered the formation of rust in the water or the soil to be a life-destroying process. For this reason, he turned to the noble metal copper. Victor and his son, Walter Schauberger, obtained many patents for agricultural implements made out of copper. Instead of rust from the iron, copper and copper alloys contain trace elements, which are brought directly into the soil through abrasion. Susanna Niedermeyer has been using copper tools in her garden for several years. 
On a small scale, she observed similar results to those documented in the 1940s in large-scale field trials in the Salzburg region and the Tyrol. An increase in soil fertility. Susanna Niedermeyer tests the spade, comparing an iron spade and a copper spade. Well, with the copper spade, I have to say, it just goes into the ground more easily. With copper tools, it seems that the trace elements also get into the soil. It seems to me that the soil in the whole garden has become homogeneous, so we don't have so much trouble with snail damage. It simply makes the work a lot easier. I recommend it. Victor Schauberger developed a special plough for loosening the soil which turned the soil inwards, centripetally, rather than outwards, centrifugally. Unfortunately, there is only one model of the spiral plough, also known as the bio-plough. Klaus Rauber of the Association for Implosion Research in the Schwarzwald explains how it works. With his bio-plough, Viktor Schauberger copied the way of a mole, faithful to his principle, comprehend and copy nature. This plough works like a mole, which moves the soil centripetally and so moves through it with hardly any resistance. Electron microscope photographs have recently shown that shark skin has a similar structure, enabling the shark to plough its way through the water with hardly any frictional resistance. Viktor Schauberger certainly had not seen such pictures in his time. This plough turns the soil twice, first by turning it at this edge and then turning it back again so that the layering of the earth remains intact. The merits or demerits of ploughing in agriculture is ever more frequently debated. Victor Schauberger's backwards-turning plough could be the way to leave microorganisms in the soil layer where they belong. antelope horn is an outstanding ear trumpet for sound amplification. But Victor Schauberger was interested in another characteristic. For him, the Kudo horn was the ideal model for water pipes because of its twisted spiral shape. In many countries, Victor and Walter Schauberger obtained patents for their spiral pipes. Such pipes are not easy to make. Felix Hediger of the Association for Implosion Research heats up copper pipes in order to bend them. With a roller he made himself, he can twist the now flexible copper pipe. Another variant is a pipe which is not twisted, but dented, the so-called Neumann pipe. Despite the fact that the pipe is straight, the water whirls in on itself. The water flows in a spiral space curve. In Victor Schauberger's view, the ideal water flow pattern. The Association for Implosion Research produces not only spiral pipes, but builds whole apparatuses following Victor Schauberger's original plans. Here is the latest version of a sophisticated water appliance to revitalize distilled water from the year 1958. 
With this sophisticated device, Viktor Schauberger attempted to combine several technical aspects. He built a small-scale wave diaphragm. There, the water pulses through and meanders in the same way as it does in a natural watercourse. The hole is covered by a lid so that light is excluded. Carbonic acid is added to the airspace. The carbonic acid is incorporated into the water during the vortexing process and high-quality salts are also added to it. The entire process has to run approximately half an hour with a positive temperature gradient. That is, the water has to cool down to 4 degrees Celsius. After half an hour, the water is taken out. It should rest a day until it has the maturity of good spring water. Possibly even, we'll test this in experiments, the maturity of healing water. Back to Felix Hediger. He builds his spiral pipes into a huge water revitalizing machine. It is not yet finished, but parts of it are. The hyperbolic funnels are already used in many ponds. The whirling air bubbles reduce the formation of algae in the pond, like on this golf course in the Taunus near Frankfurt. There is also a smaller funnel, a tabletop unit for enlivening drinking water. Jens Fischer has conducted numerous Schauberger Vortex experiments. He sells the first water vitalizing equipment, which has been produced in great numbers since 1980. The so-called Martin Whirler was developed after a suggestion to Victor Sonvalta by a hydraulic engineer. Several thousand devices are also in use in different applications. Numerous bakers report the improved rising of dough and the retarded mould development. The Whirler has also been used in hydrotherapy for many years. According to medical opinion, the world water can relieve tensions in the neck and shoulder areas as well as ease rheumatic pain. The patients are treated with water that has itself been treated. The water treatment appliances that Victor Schauberger built himself in the 30s were likewise used successfully for therapeutic purposes. Unfortunately, none of the devices from his water laboratory have survived. At the Schauberger Congress in Hör in Sweden with participants from 15 nations, Klaus Rauber and Jörg Schauberger demonstrated the functionality of Victor Schauberger's original suction coil. A kind of pump that sucks the water rather than pushing it. The water is carried smoothly as its flow is not interrupted by paddles. The Swedish hosts have specialized in vortex appliances. They make use of the reciprocal pressure and suction effects within the vortex for different applications. But then, Murphy's Law comes into effect. After the camera is dry again, a visit to nearby Malmo. Jörg Schauberger meets his Swedish friends. In the background is the new Malmo landmark, the Turning Torso, a twisted multi-storey building. 
Although this building behind me doesn't have anything to do with Schauberger, it still makes me happy to be able to show how something so alive, like a turbulence, a twist, can be made out of something so rigid. Here in Sweden, Malmö is the home of a group which intensively investigates water turbulence. Research into Schauberger and the vortex is well established in Sweden. Sweden is a historical Boden for the Schauberger and Wirbelforschung. Because here, Olaf Alexanderson wrote his book, Living Water, one of the standard works about Viktor Schauberger. Here, the legendary IET Malmö group, Kurt Halberg and friends, have continued their researches and they're very close to new discoveries about vortexed water and its applications in everyday life. Kurt Halberg and Anders Eva demonstrate in the laboratory how a Whirljet nozzle can add air into water already at a low pressure. This process is also reversible, to remove air from the water. The jet nozzle has a hyperbolic form and generates a very strong vortex. The air bubbles are drawn into the center. Then a vacuum is created in the center of the vortex. The jet nozzle has proven itself in practice. The vortex generator is built into a cylinder and marketed by the company Watrico, created for this purpose. Small, small bubbles in the, in, uh, the water floats towards the center as the, the uh, rotation will generate a sub-pressure. This is very beneficial for an example making ice, as uh, the ice that will be made or frozen by the water treated with the vortexer uh, will have less air inside. It's very good also for altering the uh, uh, floating tendencies of water or the dynamic viscosity as the water floats better out on the ice, filling cracks and pores, uh, especially when you are in an ice arena where people are skating and there's a lot of stress on the ice. In this ice rink, a Watrico vortex generator is attached to the water pipe. Degassed tap water flows into the water tank of the ice preparation machine. The new ice is denser and more resistant, so it lasts longer. This also saves energy. Water is normally heated up to make ice, since one of the many anomalies of water is that warm water freezes more quickly than cold water. Before we had installed the system, the water needed to be heated up to 45 degrees. Sometimes some people use 55 degrees. And as you put out uh, around 10 cubic meters every day, this means that uh, a lot of energy is put into heating 10 cubic meter from, say, 10 degrees from the tap water up to 45 degrees. Today we use only 20 degrees, which means actually you have cut the, the energy costs uh, by 50%. Small wonder then that several ice making machines run with vortexed water. The real ice technique of Watrico has been installed so far in 25 ice rinks, 20 of them in Sweden. Back at the Schauberger Congress in Hör, the American Dan Rees presents his vortex machine. 
It consists of a series of linked cylinders and purifies the water without any chemicals whatsoever. Uh, I read Living Waters. This is how I got into this. I read a book called Living Waters by Olaf Alexanderson. And Victor Schauberger was the main person in this book. And he, uh, uh, he wanted clean water for everybody. First, Reese uses the vortex tubes to remove iron and sulfur from the groundwater in his native Texas. Now he's trying to desalinate seawater with this energy-saving technique. I know it's possible. It's just, uh, it's just a matter of time now. Uh, we're, very, we're, we're pretty close. Uh, uh, just getting uh, chloride removal is very close. Dan Reese has left one machine there. The Swedish team has installed new jet nozzles in order to optimize the development of the vortex. In Malmo Yacht Harbor, Kurt Halberg pumps seawater into a large can. In the laboratory, the water runs through the vortex tubes. With the initial trials, they achieved a significant reduction in the salt content and also the pH value. In the 1930s, Victor, and later his son Walter, experimented with the so-called Kelvin generator. When falling through copper spirals, thin strands of water produce high electrical voltages. Tiny water droplets suddenly change their direction of fall, contrary to the laws of gravity, and move back upwards. This levitation is a phenomenon that had already been investigated in the 19th century by the Nobel Physics Laureate Philip Leonard at waterfalls in the Alps. The tiniest water droplets carry an electrostatic charge. They form a very fine spray that can easily be seen and inhaled. Waterfalls have a positive effect on human health, particularly easing asthmatic complaints. Although over 10,000 volts was generated in the water thread experiment, no significant electrical current was produced. Victor and Walter Schauberger halted their experiments into alternative energy generation. In the beginning of the 1950s, they started a new approach, based on the spiral pipes. They had already used these as the optimum curved shape for their water channels. In 1952, Victor Schauberger's patented spiral pipes were tested at the Stuttgart University of Technology, the legendary purple experiment. Schauberger's frequent attacks on academic science, especially on water resource management, caused a number of politicians to commission Professor Purple to test Schauberger's pipes. The aim was to confirm or disprove Schauberger's ideas once and for all. For these measurements, Schauberger provided Franz Purple with some pipes. Amongst others, there was a straight copper pipe, as well as a double-coiled spiral pipe. The aim of these measurements was to test and compare the vortex flow processes within the pipe in order to determine whether or not this shape of pipe enables the water to pass through with reduced friction. 
With these measurements, the relationship between friction and the flow velocity within the pipe was determined. There were clear differences between the straight and the spiral pipe. With the spiral pipe in particular, a sort of critical resonance point was discovered, at which the water flowed through the pipe without any apparent resistance. However, some interpolations were made which, at a closer look, would not stand up to scientific investigation. In his preliminary investigations, Professor Purple didn't take enough measurements, especially around those fascinating resonance points. For this reason, the Association for Implosion Research decided to set up the experiments again and repeat the tests. At the time, however, Viktor Schauberger was encouraged by the Purple report to make the spiral pipes the core of his own energy machines, for example in his home power station from 1955. This allows energy to be produced from water and air. For Viktor Schauberger, conventional explosion technology was the technology of death. With his home power plant, he hoped to stimulate atomic conversion processes through implosion, fulfilling the dream of a non-polluting energy converter that is economical with natural resources. Water jets of enormous force develop in the spiral pipes. But on the very first test run, the pipes burst. A second prototype was drawn up by Victor's collaborator Scherio and built later in Canada. Now this suction turbine has been brought to Germany for closer investigation. Firstly, it's powered by a motor until it reaches a working speed of rotation. After this, water is run into the turbine and the tangential rebound of the water jets with these nozzles causes the rotor to turn by itself so that the drive suddenly starts to run on its own, generating enough electricity to supply a household. The regulation for this entire process is in the lower section. The water flow is controlled with this nozzle. With this small knob we regulate the power output of the generator. Here we have the intake vents. In the center of this fixed part is an ascending coil with a built-in suction coil, another core piece of Schauberger's machines. But first, several components have to be revised and adapted, especially the links between the motor and the generator. Only then can the turbine be accelerated gradually up to 3,000 revolutions per minute. July 2007. At a convention of the Association for Implosion Research, Jörg Schauberger and Klaus Rauber unwrap a long-lost piece of equipment. It is the last repulsin that Victor Schauberger ever built. In 1958, it was lost in America. The repulsin was constructed at the time of the miracle weapons of the Third Reich and became a legend after the war. One specimen allegedly took off from the workbench and shattered on the ceiling. From this story, the mythology grew that Victor Schauberger had built the first flying saucer. But what really was the repulsing? According to a technical drawing of the prototype from 1940, the repulsing could, among other things, silently power an aeroplane without the need for fuel. A look into the interior of the first repulsing. 
a replica that was found in the cellar of the Pythagoras Kepler School in Bad Ischl. In the turbine there are two wavy plates, one on top of the other. Air was drawn in through the gill slits between the two plates. Here, Victor Schauberger wanted to mimic the energy processes that are generated in the curves of a riverbed. And then the air is sucked in here through the slots and brought into the diaphragm inside, so that the air flows around here in a circle. Now we just remove the ring so that we can see it a little more easily. Here the air escapes between the discs and is rotated with these earlobe-shaped guide vanes. Schauberger's central approach here was the principle of matter transformation. The elements of the air, particulate matter and gases are converted in this repulsator, which is what we call the core of this repulsin. With this transformation, the different elements group together and are separated out. One part escapes through the ring rotator. And the radiation energy, Schauberger talks about synthesis electricity, is emitted through the central axis. That's why he also planned to incorporate this machine in aeroplanes as an alternative to the propeller for propulsion. Basically, the repulsion creates a biological vacuum along the axis in front of it, into which the aeroplane is sucked. Like the trout that's basically sucked through a vortex. A revolutionary propulsion concept. The question of what happened to Victor Schauberger's last repulsion becomes even more interesting. In June 2002, the American Richard Feierabend appeared unexpectedly at a seminar in Bad Ischl. He showed pictures of the repulsion which he had rediscovered in Texas. Feierabend was a U.S. Marine pilot. Colleagues had told him the mythology surrounding Victor Schauberger's flying discs. One of the speakers at the same seminar was the Englishman Callum Coates. He and Feierabend got to know one another as Coates had written the first English-language book about Victor Schauberger. Callum Coates is an architect and Schauberger researcher who lives in Australia and who translated numerous of Victor's texts into English. Victor's wording was specific and very often difficult to understand, so it was a tough undertaking. In the chapter, What Happened in America, Coates reconstructed the exact events of the summer of 1958. In the Schauberger archive in Bad Ischl, Ingrid Schauberger presents Victor's correspondence from that time. These are the last original documents from Victor Schauberger's life. With this knowledge, his grandson Jörg went to America in April 2004. First stop was Fredericksburg in Virginia, the home of the Feierabend family. Richard Feierabend had unfortunately since died. Jörg Schauberger was welcomed by his widow, Patty. Hey. Patty Feierabend showed all the documents which her husband had been able to secure and which have not yet found their way to Europe. 
Das hier sind alles Original. Here are all the original documents that Dick Feierabend collected from Texas. I'm very surprised about the abundance of the material. One can see here some original photographs, as well as the legendary purple report, the paper that was written at the University of Stuttgart in 1952. We've seen copies of it, but this paper has the original signature of the professor on it. So it's also of great interest to Schauberger research. Tell your mom, hello? Ingrid, hello? Children, hello? It was already late when Jörg Schauberger said goodbye to Patty Feierabend, but he had not yet seen the repulsing. The journey continued the next day to Austin, the state capital of Texas. Jörg Schauberger visited an institute that specializes in future technologies. The research ranges from cold fusion to so-called zero-point energy. Its client list includes the American space agency, NASA. And here it stands on the test bench. Victor Schauberger's repulsing from the year 1945. Richard Feierabend had brought the machine back to Texas shortly before he died. He wanted to know whether it could produce a lift, in other words, overcome the force of gravity. Hal Puthoff, head of institute and a renowned experimental physicist, showed Jörg Schauberger the test stand. Puthoff's colleague, Scott Little, used a stroboscope lamp to test whether the material would be deformed with a rising speed of revolution. At 2,000 revolutions per minute, the tests were aborted. There was concern that the half-century-old machine would fly apart. I must say, one of the things I was impressed with was uh, the quality of the construction, considering it was from the 40s. And, uh, for example, when we put it on its bearings and spun it around, it spun very freely, as, as good as any modern bearings, actually. And so, uh, I could see that its uh, function was to generate some kind of vortex airflow. And so what we wanted to do is look to see if uh, when it was spun at high speeds, <coughs> whether it would generate any, any lift. And what was the result of your test? Unfortunately, uh, we didn't uh, see any lift. Now, <coughs> there are two aspects of this that we wondered about after the fact, and that is we only had pictures of the device uh, before we received it, and there were at least two parts of the device that uh, were not provided us. One of the parts we had pictures of, photos of, and so we were able to fabricate that uh, part of the device to add to what was sent to us. And then there was another smaller camp that we had no information on its structure. It wouldn't look like it would pay, play a major role, but, you know, we can't be sure. So when we didn't see a good effect, we didn't know if perhaps uh, we were still missing a significant part. Like this and with tools. For the first time, Jörg Schauberger saw the interior of his grandfather's last repulsing. What is his conclusion? Also, das, was man von den... Schauberger fliegenden Untertassen. Well, what we had hoped for from Schauberger's flying saucers 
did not happen, unfortunately. But it has to be said that not all the parts were there. Viktor Schauberger had said that the catalysts in particular were essential for his machine to move in a way that corresponds to nature, and these were missing. We should have been able to obtain energy without wasting resources, with machines that run on only water and air. We'll see what comes out of this. So, it will be back to the drawing board for a while before we can publish new findings. Jörg Schauberger has a different aim at the moment. He is following his father and grandfather's footsteps to the Texas-Oklahoma border, to the Red River of Western movies. On the 1st of July, 1958, Victor boarded an aeroplane from New York to Dallas, Texas, accompanied by his son Walter and his son-in-law, Dr. Walter Lueb. Some American business people had invited them to stay, especially the German-born American Karl Gersheimer. He saw that there was no future in explosion technology. He had heard of Victor's concepts of virtually free energy production. He wanted to develop and market these ideas in the land of opportunity. With the backing of a wealthy US financier, the project could start in Texas. So, in the summer of 1958, Victor and Walter Schauberger came to a remote, semi-desert area in the north of Texas. 73-year-old Victor had difficulty with the oppressive heat. But he hoped to be able to complete his life's work here. Grandson Jörg looks for clues. The only photograph of his father and grandfather together in Texas. Jörg goes on to Denison the birthplace of the former U.S. President, Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is a postcard of the house President Eisenhower was born in. It shows the house as it looked in 1958, when my father wrote this card to us back home. It was July 1958, where he wrote, We're doing really well. We're in high spirits. So that was the beginning of the expedition to the USA, my grandfather's and father's American adventure. Jörg drives into the small town nearby, Sherman. Karl Gersheimer had a business associate here, Harold Totten. He owned a foundry that produced tubes and drill pipes for oil and gas production. The firm is still owned by the Totten family and is still called the Washington Ironworks. When I got out of the car and walked into the office of the Washington Ironworks for the first time, I felt a little uncertain. We tried to get in touch via email, but we didn't receive an answer. So I wasn't sure what kind of welcome I'd get. But the chief executive of the firm was friendly, and Jörg could move freely around the factory. He found the old factory shed where Schauberger's machines were to be built. Unfortunately, this never happened. The prototypes from Austria arrived only after a two-month delay, 
and were not handled with care. A few pieces ended up later in Karl Gersheimer's garage, where they were found by Richard Feierabend many years later. Wally Totten, the current boss of Washington Ironworks, showed Jörg his manufacturing plant, where they make precision parts out of aluminium. Wally Totten can still remember Victor Schauberger very well because of his full beard, which reminded him rather of Santa Claus. As he was a trainee at that time, he could not remember the project itself. His father told him some details later, especially about Karl Gersheimer, the initiator of the project. My grandfather and uh -huh. my father. Yes. Um, my father was very bitter about the way Carl handled particularly the relationship because he, he really felt that uh, Carl was the one that, that caused the project not to work. Uh, uh, and nobody really knows why, but uh, my, my father was, uh, was very, very uh, uh, convinced that Carl was a... a was a very negative influence on that on that whole situation. And as I say, was a Carl also seemed to spread some some distrust amongst the other people. Jörg Schauberger is not surprised because he knows that the Texas project ended in a fiasco. After a few weeks, communication problems and misunderstandings led to the breakdown of mutual trust. Victor refused to stay here in Texas any longer than three months. In this diner, Victor and Walter Schauberger used to have their breakfast. Afterwards, boss Wally Totten takes Jörg in his Porsche to his family's former country home, about 10 kilometers outside Sherman. This is where the Austrian inventors stayed. The Totten family sold the property some 20 years ago. Today, it is pretty run down. Wally Totten was sorry about that because in 1958, it looked quite different. At, uh, at that time, my father kept it very much like a golf course. Uh, it was a, a wooden rail fence around the property. It was kept mowed and trimmed, and we had horses and cows and, and that sort of thing. It was, it was a working farm but uh, very neat, unlike the way you see it now. It breaks my heart to see it this way. Uh, I'm glad my father can't see it. Here, Victor and Walter Schauberger spent most of their time during their stay in Texas. They wrote letters and essays and drew project sketches, but the Americans seemed suddenly to have lost interest in them. In the first days and weeks, in the first days and weeks, they were still very optimistic and full of confidence that the project would provide the breakthrough and that they would be successful here in the USA. As the weeks went by and with nothing to do out here, the letters got more and more pessimistic until a point was reached where it couldn't go on anymore. In the end, my grandfather signed a contract in which he transferred the rights to all his ideas, all his patents and thoughts to an American consortium just so that he could fly back home again. And, as you know, five days later, after he was back home, he died. I saw him as a man of great insight. 
In the 30s or even later, if people had listened to Viktor Schauberger, we would have been spared all the disasters we have today and which we're expecting to have. It cannot be different. Nobody could see the problems of life so comprehensively as he did. We cannot live without a living nature. That is quite clear. Victor's son, Walter, was an engineering graduate who tried to put together his father's empirical insights into a mathematical theory. He studied the monochord, a stringed instrument that Pythagoras played to make audible the harmony of the universe. When you cut a string in two, it sounds twice as high. When we now take a third of a string, it sounds three times higher. When we divide it into quarters, four times higher, and so on. From this pattern, my father, Walter Schauberger, derived his law of sound. For him, it was a universal law, the law of the universe. If one depicts this law graphically, one gets a hyperbola a curve that comes out of infinity and goes back into infinity. If we rotate the hyperbola around the y-axis, we get a hyperbolic cone. Walter Schauberger called it the tone tower. If we turn that cone upside down, we have a funnel, a hyperbolic funnel. We already know this funnel with its spiraling water vortex inside. In 1986, the funnel was produced. In August of the same year, Walter Schauberger conducted the first test runs with it. A stable, pulsating structure develops out of a wobbling chaos. Walter Schauberger calls this vortex nature's energy program. It is controlled by frequency, this double helix, and instead of frequency, we say the number of revolutions. And then it's white at the bottom. Innumerable gas bubbles spiral around the plate in the center, a characteristic energy vortex pattern. In a natural river course, longitudinal vortexes form up like this. Walter's father, Victor, declared that this spiraling motion also appears in the three-dimensional helix around a hyperbolic cone. When it is cut along the diagonal, one obtains an oval section plane, which corresponds to a natural egg shape. As far back as 1609, the astronomer Johannes Kepler suspected that the planets moved in oval courses, but he described them as ellipses, because elliptical equations were already known back then. Thus, the hyperbolic cone, the tone tower, is a link between the harmony of Pythagoras and the astronomy of Kepler. Walter Schauberger summarized his mathematical theory under the term Pythagoras-Kepler system, known as PKS. 
For Walter, here in movie shots from the year 1972, the egg shape was the ideal form for technical equipment in which mixtures, solutions or emulsions can be produced. An egg-shaped reactor would offer new possibilities for energy generation, but a lack of money put an end to the trials. Walter Schauberger received many patents for spiraling treatment systems for fluid and gaseous media. One such machine was used at the Hamburg Waterworks in 1967. The department manager at the time, Gerhard Spreckelmeier, can still remember the tests. Schauberger's parabolic-shaped stirring machine was at the bottom of the tank. An underwater motor turned a propeller to produce a vortex. We tried to add chemicals to it, since the chemical balance in water is always tricky to manage, and we had good results. We welcomed Mr. Schauberger gladly, a well-rounded and open-minded man. We gave him the nickname Schlauberger, which means something like clever mountain man. So we carried out our tests here. But we didn't need them in the end, because we found other ways to adjust the chemical balance. Despite the success with the reduction of the chemical input, the Hamburg project ended ingloriously. The parabolic-shaped bowl was put to a different use, a two-metre-wide plant pot. Walter Schauberger was not only a bioengineer, but also an early environmental activist. In 1949, he founded one of the first environmental protection organizations in Austria, the Green Front. Reforestation was a priority. Schauberger maintained close contacts with the Men of the Trees in England and with the German Woodland Protection Association, here at a meeting with the German president, Theodor Heuss. In 1970, Walter Schauberger founded the Pythagoras Kepler School PKS in Bad Ischl. The seminars and lectures aimed to promote natural technologies. The engineer and journalist Gottfried Hilscher was often a guest at PKS and was the first German author to describe Walter Schauberger's approach to energy generation. If a tornado was a machine, then it would not work. Because our textbooks tell us that we can't obtain propulsion energy from environmental heat. A tornado, however, obviously does exactly that. Nature's method of movement and energy generation is implosion, not explosion. That means suction instead of pressure. Movement directed inwards, not outwards. Walter's wife, Ingeborg Schauberger, now an old lady, can still remember his brave words. Don't parrot what is explained in books in such detail, but think in the opposite direction instead. As the father had told his son, Walter, when it is about technology, you just have to think 180 degrees differently. Then it turns out right. In 1996, two years after Walter Schauberger's death, the seminars resumed. Among the first contributors and supporters were Kurt Lorek, Norbert Hartun and Uwe Fischer, Maximilian Mack, Konrad Richli, 
and Wilhelm Martin. Ingrid and Jörg Schauberger have run the PKS seminars since the year 2000. In 2006, the English hydrodynamics researcher John Wilkes was a guest lecturer. He developed flow forms in which the water pulsates rhythmically over bowl-shaped cascades. They serve to enliven the water and are also artistic landscape architecture. Today, one such flow form is installed in front of the PKS villa in Bad Ischl. The form of the biotope is appropriate for a Schauberger institution, egg-shaped. The vision of the trout turbine. The concepts and applications of natural eco-technology are very wide-ranging and not yet fully explored. Jörg Schauberger's view. Victor and Walter Schauberger's insights should be seen as an invitation to be inspired. So the point isn't to stick to the literal meaning, but develop one's own ideas and thoughts for a future with and not against nature. Maybe we can add a third C to my grandfather's C and C motto. Comprehend, copy and cooperate with nature. Otmar Grober in Styria has been cooperating with nature for a long time by building his river constructions which protect the riverbanks and vitalize the water at the same time. After he retires, Grober plans to develop a water power turbine. It is to be a bio-turbine according to Victor Schauberger's principles, which achieves a greater energy output without damaging the water and which lets the fish carry on swimming upstream. In Sweden, the Malmö Schauberger group vitalizes numerous public and private ponds with its vortex systems, with visible success. Watrico's new super vortexer adds tiny air bubbles into the water and so produces almost the contrary of fog. Not small water droplets in the air, but air bubbles in the water. An efficient and promising method for aerating filter beds, for example. The Association of Implosion Research is going to conduct further repulsing tests with catalysts such as silica gel. Where this fisherman is standing, Felix Hediger's water vitalizing machine, Belebula, is making its maiden voyage. The pond, contaminated with algae, can take a deep breath now, after human intervention. For this water vitalizing machine, we need four pumps in all. We have developed our own pump. These pumps are designed to transport water in a correct, natural way. They don't smash up the water as conventional centrifugal pumps do. One can see that the rotor is screw-shaped and formed into a spiral. That is typical of the Schauberger way. To this extent, this pump is also inspired by Schauberger and Schauberger technology. The solar-powered pumps bring up cold water from a depth of three meters. First, it comes into vortex eggs, which have had minerals inserted. The water then rises further upwards in spiral pipes, and then either falls through a hyperbolic funnel or falls back on itself 
as a jet of water. Victor Schauberger developed a special plough for loosening the soil which turned the soil inwards, centripetally, rather than outwards, centrifugally. Unfortunately, there is only one model of the spiral plough, also known as the bio-plough. Klaus Rauber of the Association for Implosion Research in the Schwarzwald explains how it works. With his bio-plough, Victor Schauberger copied the way of a mole, faithful to his principle, comprehend and copy nature. This plough works like a mole, which moves the soil centripetally and so moves through it with hardly any resistance. Electron microscope photographs have recently shown that shark skin has a similar structure, enabling the shark to plough its way through the water with hardly any frictional resistance. Victor Schauberger certainly had not seen such pictures in his time. This plough turns the soil twice, first by turning it at this edge and then turning it back again so that the layering of the earth remains intact. The merits or demerits of ploughing in agriculture is ever more frequently debated. Victor Schauberger's backwards-turning plough could be the way to leave microorganisms in the soil layer where they belong. If there were not love between two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, if there was not a desire for cooperation, a desire for union, then there would be no water. And so when you look out here in nature, everything that you can see in physical form is the result of a congregation of atoms or molecules who desire to congregate, to cooperate, to create whatever it is in front of eyes that is beautiful to see. Everything has its place and everything contributes to the whole. So we come to this idea of water being this amazing substance which is created fundamentally out of love. It's created out of the love 
for oxygen for hydrogen. It's created out of the love of mother substances, which are carbons and minerals and all those trace elements, all combine in water to produce this life elixir, which if it is high quality, will endow us with extraordinary energy and longevity. So how do we get back to this water? What does this wonderful substance do for us? How can we treat it? How can we store it? Well, water, juvenile water, young water, is born in the forest. And as it gradually comes to the surface, it gathers to itself minerals, trace elements, until arriving at the surface as a spring, it is mature. It has its full complement of mother substances. It's ready to give. And one of the principal ingredients in good water is carbonic acid, which is a compound of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen. And when you put a glass of very good quality water out in the sun, and you let it stand in the sun, then eventually you'll see some little bubbles form on the inside of the glass as the water heats up. And that is the conversion of carbonic acid into carbon dioxide. And all these little bubbles coming out represent the carbon dioxide coming out of the water, represent the body of the water, the good taste of the water coming out of it. And it also represents an enormous energy loss. And so many of our systems of reticulation today are designed merely from the point of view that water is a fluid, that it has no life, and so it doesn't matter which way you treat it. So we make it flow down straight channels, we make it flow into cylindrical objects, we make it flow into all sorts of vessels and shapes which are nowhere to be found in nature. And we don't perceive, even with so many spiral formations and spiral movements around us, I mean, in terms of the spiral motion of the galaxies, in terms of the spiral movement of cyclones, tornadoes, and so on. All these spirals are there everywhere, and we don't see that nature has chosen these shapes because they represent those artifacts, those formations, which follow her laws of constant change. Because the only thing which is constant in nature is change. And if we want to create a system for water reticulation, then we must also create, within the forms that we provide, the possibility for water to change and transform and to renew itself. Victor Schauberger, born in Austria in 1885, was descended from a long line of foresters and conservators of the forest. And in his blood, he therefore had an enormous amount of information inherited, so to speak, genetically from his forebears. And the family motto was, have faith in the silent forests. He, as a young man, spent most of his time in the forest and there he was able to 
perceive phenomena, energetic phenomena in nature in untouched virgin forest, which gave him so many insights into the way nature functioned and particularly with regard to water. He says that he used to sit beside a flowing stream and was never bored for a minute. He used to allow a part of his consciousness to flow away with the water. And when it was returned to him finally, the water psyche revealed many secrets to him. So in a sense, he was able to send his consciousness to those places the eyes couldn't see. And in returning with information, it confirmed or further developed the theories that he had on water. Throughout his whole life, he was an unconventional person in terms of contemporary physics or science. And he had a long and running battle with scientists, often acrimonious, because those things that he said were the realities were usually in stark conflict with accepted theory at the time. And fundamentally, this revolves around water and the way water should be viewed and what is important for water to maintain its inner health and vitality. Now, what is water? Well, water, in Victor Schauberger's view, is a living substance. And whether it has life or death depends on the way it's been treated, what it's handled, how it's forced to flow or how it flows, under what conditions it flows. And all these things, Victor Schauberger perceived in his long sojourn in the forest in Austria when he was a young forester. And he had access to phenomena, energetic phenomena, which nobody else had. And indeed, in, in 1930, he wrote a book called Our Senseless Toil, which laid out clearly for everyone to see all the environmental catastrophes that would happen and which would be inevitable if humanity did not change the way it dealt with water, treated water and the forest as well, because the forest and water are so closely interconnected. You remove the forest, you remove the water at the same time. You destroy the forest, you destroy the water because instead of flowing in coolness, under the shade of trees, which is the way nature ordains for water to flow, it flows out in the sunlight and loses its energy. One of the great elements, the factors in water, which Victor was able to put his finger on, was that of temperature. When we are healthy, we say we haven't got a temperature. And water hasn't got a temperature when its temperature is four degrees Celsius. At this temperature, water is at its most dense. It has its highest energy content. It has its greatest life-giving potential at that temperature. And when the temperature increases above four degrees or below four degrees, then water gets less dense. And this anomaly point of water, and it's anomalous because all other liquids become consistently denser with cooling, water is the only liquid which stops getting denser at four degrees and starts getting less dense below that.
Oxygen is always present at all processes of growth and decay. And in water, which sphere it is active in depends on the water temperature. The critical temperature phase between one and the other is, according to Victor Schauberger, about nine degrees centigrade. Victor saw a completely different view of phenomena, the water as a living substance, but the water itself was a transformer and receiver and emitter. It transformed the energies of the cosmos and the energies of the Earth. And in this area, we also have to differentiate between the forces from the cosmos, which Victor viewed as being male, and the forces of the Earth, which were female. And water was what he called the first substance, the first born. And it was born through the interaction of the elements of the Earth and the cosmos, and more particularly, the sun. And it was the sun's fertilizing influence on water through oxygen, which, in Victor's view, was a lower form of solar radiation, which created the marvel that is water, or made out of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom in that combination. So, coming back to this operation of oxygen in water and how it functions in water, it is the inseminator in both cases of growth and decay. But when it's in a beneficial mode, then it is at a temperature below nine degrees, the carbon substances or the carbons of the earth, which Victor grouped all together as under the name mother substances. These were every element except for oxygen and hydrogen. Hydrogen was the carrier substance, oxygen was male, and fertilizing and all the other substances were female. And if you think of the word material itself, it has its origins in the Latin word mater, which means mother. And so perhaps if we think of it in this way, then you get an idea of what mother substances mean. And when oxygen is bound or is fertilized under cool conditions, then the female part of the interaction surrounds the oxygen which is passive and then the energies are transferred in such a way or transformed in such a way as to provide creative growing beneficial things and this is the interaction of oxygen and the mother substances below nine degrees once the temperature goes above nine degrees then the oxygen becomes aggressive and it binds the mother substances that it, it surrounds the mother substances who then become passive and in that situation parasitic and bacterial life forms evolve when we approach a new way of designing or a new way of looking at moving water for instance then we have to design a process which allows water to change and to transform and to move and to be itself, fundamentally to be itself. In the reticulation of water for drinking purposes, it's important to generate this longitudinal vortex. While the central flow is a simple spiral, the external peripheral flows is a double spiral movement, a rotation about the central spiral. 
which acts in a way like ball bearings and uh, facilitates the faster flow of the central core water. This double spiral movement is inaugurated by the emplacement of guide vanes which deflect the water from an otherwise straight path into a spiral path. And these, in Victor Schauberger's concept, would be silver-plated copper placed in a wooden pipe at certain intervals to create or provoke or promote this centripetal spiral flow. This spiral movement is the rejuvenating movement which endows water with fresh energy and also um, because of the movement and because of the way the oxygen is separated from the core water initially and diverted to the outside certain bacteria and pathogenic bacteria anaerobic bacteria are exposed to excess oxygen and die off and in the process uh, the longer the movement down such a pipe the purer and the more bacteria-free the water becomes. Water has certain patterns of motion. It has certain energies, and these energies are derived from its motion. And unless it is able to move in the way that generates its energies, then it becomes a sluggish and slack. It's very important for water to be able to generate a longitudinal vortex in its flow which enables it not only to reoxygenate itself but also to cool itself. The oxygen is passive and it's not aggressive towards the water itself. Because of this movement the water is cool and after it has disposed of all the pathogens by overoxygenating them then it returns to seek union with those mother substances which are as yet unfertilized. And this increases the energy, and of course there's a certain amount of birth of new water in the process. So you have a tremendous rejuvenation of the water body on the way to the point of delivery. The core of the vortex is identifiably cooler than the surrounding water masses, by as much maybe as 0.2 of a degree centigrade. So in their summation of all these little cooling processes, then the water, when allowed to flow naturally, cools itself quite considerably. And so the vortex is a cooling process. Not only that, the water re-energizes itself and it also divests itself of harmful parasites, pathogens and so on. Because of the difference in the specific weight of oxygen, and hydrogen in the water and other substances, the oxygen is thrown to the side of the pipe and directed to the pipe walls. Water moving in such a way can transport ores and other material similar to that down the middle, down the center of the water vortex without touching the sides and actually can improve the quality of the ores such as iron ore in transit on the way to the point of use because as the oxygen is gradually consumed, some of it by the extermination of pathogenic bacteria, there is a reduction process occurring in the water flow itself. So the iron ore is already partially reduced, so to speak, um, before it arrives at the smelter. Our spinal column, in German, is expressed as a spiral column.
and each of the vertebra are called vortices. And so when you take this image in conjunction with the German view of the structure which upholds the human body, then here again in their concept, it is also related to movement and vertical movement. Energy is primary and physical form is a secondary effect. In terms of the DNA molecule, that is the programming which creates the whole of the physical body. So, in, in elaboration of this movement, energy creates the pathways through which it wants to move or in which it wants to express itself. It's very important to begin to employ systems or to convert existing systems into ways of moving water which follows the law governing the flow of water, takes temperature into consideration, takes the alternating pulsating movement of water into consideration because this is a substance which is a living substance and it cannot impart life unless it is itself alive. There's this constantly changing aspect of natural form which is reflected in the seashells, reflected in the dynamics of the universe. It's this wall shape. Nature is not workings as not wheels and wheels but they're walls and walls. There's one spiral moving inside another spiral as energy because energy it must be remembered is always primary and physical form is the secondary effect. We have to turn this around in our heads and remember that energy is primary, that nothing can appear in the physical until it has been first conceived of energetically and the formation of anything physical is the concentration of the image until the physical form is realized. And this is one of the things that Victor Schauberger stated on many occasions, that energy is primary and physical form is the secondary effect. This concentration of higher energies, immaterial energies, gradually coalesce into more energies of a lower frequency, finally having the physical effect and the physical form. Analogously, we might say that the energies coming from the sun, the X-ray energies and the high-frequency energies of the sun, impinge on the Earth's atmosphere and they cause thermal variations, they cause the movement of winds, which is a lower form of energy than the energy coming from the sun. And these winds blow around the planet and on the surface of the planet are the oceans and the winds impinge on the water, which is a more dense medium than the air, and waves are created. And finally, on the shore, these waves create ripples on the sand, which is the very densest of the medium. And so, you can see how the higher energies of the sun are actually responsible for the ripples on the ocean floor. So the ultimate effect, if we're talking purely energetically, so to speak, is that we've had three levels of energy demodulation, so to speak, from the sun to the air to the water, and finally the physical form, the ripples on the sand, have been created. The whole process of nature's ev evolution or her workings um, are put back to front because things are taken as <coughs> a cause when in fact they are an effect 
and they are an effect in a long series of causes and effects. And what we are seeing around the world today in terms of the treatment of water um, and the forest are the massive inundations in China, in Bangladesh, and other places in the world which are due to deforestation. What happens here is related again to this peculiar anomaly state of water. Victor described a movement of temperature which uh, from any higher temperature down towards um, four degrees as being what he called a positive temperature gradient. And a negative temperature gradient was a temperature which moved up in the opposite direction from four degrees either down or upwards, anyway away from four degrees, which was the condition of temperaturelessness or, or indifference as uh, Victor called it. Now the temperature gradient plays an enormous role in the, the Earth's water balance. And it's something which is not really understood, and it's very important that it should be understood, because if it's not, we shall go on having the same series of drought, um, deluge, drought, deluge, and these massive um, flooding and inundations which we're experiencing at the moment. Now, water has to be handled with great sensitivity. It is a substance which is alive. It has to be treated as something alive. Therefore, it should not be exposed to excess heat. It should not be exposed to excess pressure. All those things we know in our human body are destructive. And the same thing applies to water. As long as water is able to flow in vortices down a river, which, and, and to have a movement, a flowing sort of waltzing movement to left and right, as it spirals around one bend in one way and one the other, then it's able to generate these cooling vortices. And this always, no matter what the external conditions, or at least to a certain extent, no matter what the external conditions, the water is able to cool itself towards its all-important state of temperaturelessness, which is four degrees Celsius. Unfortunately, with many of the practices, um, hydraulic practices, river engineering practices, and so on, uh, water is forced and confined to flow in straight channels, uh, and these channels are really like a straitjacket on water. It stops its free movement. It's not able to move. It's not able to waltz from left to right. It, all its ability to generate these vortices is removed from it, and as a living substance, it becomes diseased. And when forced to move in such, such or be conducted in such a way, then because it can't cool itself, it warms up. And the oxygen content becomes aggressive and fosters the development of parasitic life forms, bacteria, and so on, because the water has become too warm. And its energy, like we have in our body, we have energies which enhance our immune system. When those become depleted, then we get sick. And the same thing happens to water. And the greatest and most sensitive care must be taken of water if it is to fulfill its functions, which is to support life. Because life without water is unthinkable. And one of the great fallacies in economic theory today is, or not fallacies, but sort of mistaken thinking, is that the world can continue to move, uh, to, to grow in its materialistic way 
on the assumption that, that there can be no limit to quantitative growth. Of course there must be because this planet is finite and there's a finite number of uh, artifacts or finite materials, raw materials. When Earth rain falls onto the Earth, it falls, the rain has a certain temperature. The Earth, in order to absorb the rain, must have a cooler temperature. This is a positive temperature gradient because we are going from a hotter to a cooler temperature through the ground. If, as long as the ground is cooler than the incident rain, the water will infiltrate. And that really happens under conditions of healthy forest or healthy vegetation, which cools the ground. That means the water is absorbed, and in forestry conditions, 85% um, of the water that falls will be absorbed by the ground and, and won't be released, for instance, till two or three days after, even if it's heavy rain. Now, the, if we have a, removed the trees, if the ground has been warmed up, then we have the existence of a negative temperature gradient from the atmosphere into the ground, in that the rain is cooler, but the, gr the receiving ground is warmer. And as a result, the water will not penetrate, but run sideways. Like you put a drop of water on an electric hot plate, it skitters sideways and steams. And this steaming is the same thing that happens to the water, which has fallen on the ground under a negative temperature gradient. And that because it is not absorbed, much larger areas of water are exposed to the sun, and there's a much faster and abnormal r rate of evaporation, which means that a very large amount of water is returned to the atmosphere far too quickly. And as a result of that, you have large agglomerations of water here, no water there, deluges here, drought there. And that is all because the water balance has been disrupted, by and large, by humankind's activities in forestry and agriculture and water resources management. And we are paying the price for that now, and there is only one solution and that is to reforest as fast as possible because then the water will be uh, allowed to enter into the aquifer systems underground. A lot of carbon dioxide will be absorbed in the, in the photosynthetic process. The climate will be cooled and the water balance regulated and then we can expect to have after that um, more uh, even and regular climatic patterns than we are experiencing today. And all this is due to the lack of understanding of temperature in relation to water movement and water behavior. There are certain relations between water quality and the human immunity in the same way there are relations between temperature and the immune qualities of water. Both blood and, and water fulfill the same function. They supply, on the one hand, the body earth with nutrients and elements so that it can grow and develop, and on the other hand, in our own body, it does the same thing. And these um, abilities are very much temperature dependent. But first we'll discuss water, because this also applies to the body, so anything really that I say about water also applies to blood and it applies to sap and the movement of sap in trees. Water has its um, greatest density at its anomaly point of plus four degrees. It has to be maintained at this temperature 
uh, for as long as possible because this is a temperature which allows water to um, shift material. Uh, it allows water to grind up rocks, for instance, on its passage down a river, which then, then are supplied to the environment through which it passes. The coolness allows for the removal transport of sediment, which is um, also which needs to happen in the blood, in the body, because the blood has to take waste matter and take it away. If the temperature relationships in the blood are not um, correct, then things like varicose veins and, uh, and um, sclerosis and so on happen because the blood isn't in a position energetically anymore to shift the material. The same applies to water. Now, water has, of course, its content of oxygen. And oxygen, as we all know, is always present at, uh, at growth and also in decay. And whether it is active in one or the other spheres depends on the temperature. And in water, this crucial, um, what you might call changeover temperature, is at nine degrees. Below that, uh, the oxygen is, so to speak, bound by the water and is a passive, it's passive, and it, it goes towards the creating of high-grade um, microorganisms beneficial to life. Once water rises above that nine degrees, then it gradually becomes more aggressive, and it enters a, an energetic level which is, uh, so to speak, in harmony with parasites and bacteria, and then fosters their growth and development. And that is why it's very important um, in terms of the way we transport water and we move it from one place to another, that it should always be able uh, to cool itself. It should be able to breathe because as a living substance it must also be able to breathe. And in our modern world we seal it up in concrete or steel pipes and gradually the water suffocates and um, its oxygen content gets totally burnt up. Uh, water has to be handled with great sensitivity. It is a substance which is alive. It has to be treated as something alive. Therefore, it should not be exposed to excess heat. It should not be exposed to excess pressure. All those things we know in our human body are destructive. And the same thing applies to water. There are two forces acting in any flow of water. That there is the force of gravity which flows from the source down to the sea. And there's the force of levity which flows from the sea back up to the source again. And the trout responds and is able to manipulate the forces of gravity and the forces of levity in order to maintain its station in flowing water. The extraordinary thing is that when a trout is startled from its lair or where it's reposing, then it accelerates upstream with extraordinary velocity using the force of levity to move itself upstream. Victor Schauberger found himself in a very high alpine virgin forest, which he frequented so often, and in which he found the most extraordinary events. He came across them. It was though he was almost ordained to be there at the right time in order to perceive them. He came across this fast-flowing upland stream in which there was a trout, one of these stationary trout, just with a very slight flick of its tail, was standing in this rushing water. And apart from its station there, uh, which of course 
asked, made him ask the questions of how it was able to stand there and so on. He knew that about a kilometer downstream there was a waterfall, a very high waterfall where the falling water atomized into mist. And so how was it possible, he asked himself, that this trout managed to get to this spot? Because they always come back to their spawning grounds to breed again. And from these sort of insights, he evolved the idea of this interaction of two energies, of this gravitational movement from the source to the sea and from the sea back up to the source again. And the trout uses the levitational force in order to surmount these waterfalls. And it circles down at the bottom of the waterfall until it finds this upward vortex and then throws itself into the vortex which then sucks it up and eventually ends up on the up upstream end of it. Victor Schauberger decided to test this out. Victor had asked some of his foresters to boil up a cauldron of about 100 liters of water, about 150 meters upstream. And on his signal, they poured the water into the stream. And as soon as the water hit the stream, 150 meters up from where the fish was, the fish started to, to flail its tail as hard as it could and went backwards. Something had been cut in the water. The energy, which was the levitational force, had been destroyed by heat. Levitational force is the, the bioenergetic force, the biomagnetic force. It is the life force. And Victor observed these moss tips. The moss tips pointed up against the stream, against the current. But when the water was heated up through deforestation, then the moss tips pointed downstream, although because the water had heated, it was less dense than it was before. So he regarded these tips of the moss as being an indicator, indicating the health or disease of a, of a, of a stream. There is also another process by which the trout enables itself to stay in the fast-flowing water. And that is through the difference between the speed of the water as it flows past the trout's body and trout's breathing itself. According to Victor Schauberger, every particle of water is associated with a particular velocity and a particular temperature. And if the temperature relative to that velocity is exceeded, then turbulence automatically occurs. So in the terms of the trout, it's sitting with its body in the center, the coldest core water of the stream. And as the water filaments approach the body, they get squeezed aside by the body and in the process accelerate. And as they accelerate, they exceed their specific velocity relative to temperature and turbulence occurs on the rear flank of the trout, which acts so it actually propels the trout upstream the trout breathes in, or at least it takes in water through its lungs, extracts the oxygen from the water, or the large part of it, which then that water passes out through the, through the gills in a semi-oxygen deficient state. And as a result of its lack of oxygen, it absorbs oxygen from the surrounding water and expands. And this expansion is also pushed on the back of the trout, which squeezes it forward like a, like a bar of soap. When it wants to accelerate, it flaps its gills very fast and that creates more turbulence and also because there is a greater 
expulsion of oxygen deficient water, that means there's a great expansion of water behind it, which pushes the trout forward upstream. When we approach a new way of designing or a new way of looking at moving water, for instance, then we have to design a process which allows water to change and to transform and to move and to be itself, fundamentally to be itself. And there was a time when Victor, early, fairly early in his days, built a log flume for the transport of logs down the mountain. When it came to build it, it was going to be constructed out of timber and it was going to be a half egg shape in the profile. So that there was this shape made out of wooden slats. And when the workers asked him, well, how, where they were going to build it, he said, well, now you see the valley here and see the river. So that's the way that the energies like to move in this situation. So we copy that. And one of his great adages was comp comprehend and copy nature. Because nature knows how best how to do things and has known best for years. It's only human beings who decide arbitrarily to impose their own laws or what they think are laws, which are actually only half laws. Um, in case of gravity, for instance, with the total negation of levity, there's the law of gravity, but there is the law of levity. In fact, there's the law of both together. So in this log flume, which was built to follow the contours of the valley, there were slats attached to the sides of the walls on left-hand bends and on right-hand bends so that the water was caused to rotate or to form longitudinal vorses anti-clockwise and then clockwise as it went around these bends. In this first instance built in Steiling, uh, this uh, was constructed for Prince Adolf zu Schaumburg-Lippe, who was the owner of Great Forest Estates and the electrical length of the flume was about two kilometers. The water and temperature was very strictly controlled. Victor determined that in order to make the flume function properly, in order to generate the right energies, it was necessary to introduce different temperatures of water into the flume. From the surface of the water to the bottom of the holding basin, there's a thermal stratification, that the water stratifies itself according to temperature and density so that the coldest water, the four-degree water, is at the bottom of the basin and gradually the water heats as it goes towards the top. And so there would have been a pipe which took bottom water out, the four-degree water out, then another one maybe at six degrees and another one taking the nine-degree water out. And these would have been introduced into the flume tangentially so that they automatically inaugurated a spiral movement a vortical movement, a longitudinal vortical movement, in which the coldest water would have been at the center, surrounded by the water with less density and greater temperature. The colder the water is, the more laminar its flow. That means that it's more straight line movement, although it was still screwing, it's still spiraling. And the logs, the heavy beach logs, which were, were otherwise called sinkers because they sunk to the bottom, were suspended in this central uh, vortical flow, this cold water, because they were denser than the densest water and the only place that they could be was in the center of the dense water. And they were conducted all the way down these flumes without touching the sides. And his flumes were so successful that actually about nine of them were built. It was this phenomenon that enabled Victor to transport logs, which were heavier than water, down 
his log flume without touching the sides. Now these logs were known as sinkers because normally they were heavier than water and they dropped to the bottom. But because of this centripetal, this involutionary, this inward moving from the outside to was the inside spiral movement, the densest part of the water mass was in the very center of the flow and the logs being denser had to occupy the densest position, surrounded by the immediately denser water, the four degree water. And so in moving down the log flume, uh, there was a suction created in front of the log because the, the coldest water was accelerating, which actually sucked the log along in its wake. Periodically, because of course eventually these different water temperatures mixed and tend to become a uniform temperature, Victor used to allow some water to drain out and at the same point introduced what he called energy water, which was very cold water from an adjacent spring or stream uh, which had a temperature of about 4, 4.5, 5 degrees centigrade in order to reintroduce this central charge, central um, mass of very cold water which would continue to accelerate. And this is really how the log flume worked. There were other factors involved which relate to the way the water was caused to rotate in anti-clockwise vortices on left-hand bends and clockwise vortices on right-hand bends. In order to do this, Victor had his workmen uh, nail slats at uh, an angle around the outside of the bend, the outside surface of the bend. And the water encountering, encountering these slats was imparted either a clockwise spiral or an anti-clockwise spiral. So that the effect of this was when it emerged to at the surface, the log was always pushed away from the bend. So that the logs passing down this flume never touched the sides. The flume was therefore never damaged in its use and nor were the logs. And they arrived in absolutely impeccable condition. And on the first day that it was used, one of the criteria which determined whether Victor was to be paid or not is whether the flume would deliver a thousand solid cubic meters of timber in one day. Uh, in the first day of operation, it delivered 1,600 cubic meters of timber and Victor Schauberger was paid. And everybody else, all the, all the experts were furious at the success of this because it showed that somewhere in their hydraulic theory, there was a great error, a great misunderstanding of water. And Victor used to say in this regard, how can you possibly understand how water, a living substance, uh, can behave when the only place you test it in is in laboratories instead of out in nature, where then water acts in, in, in relation to nature's laws and not the laws that you have contrived in your places of research. The Victor constructed a reservoir of water at the top, at the head of the flume. And when the time came for opening, on the opening day, uh, the experts arrived and saw the construction of this, this basin, holding basin, and said that it was too far too flimsy. It certainly couldn't withstand the pressure of the water and so on. And Victor gave them no answer and went down and stood right in the middle of the wall opposite where the water was going to flow in. And then he gave the signal by firing two shots of his carbine to signal to allow the water to rush in, which it did with tremendous force and volume. 
And Victor said to the people who were gesticulating, say, come back, you're going to be killed. He said, it, what does it matter? If I'm a fool, then I'm going to be swept away, and so will my theories at the same time. But I believe in what I'm doing. And so he stood looking over the wall, watching this w water flow in. And the water actually flowed in around the sides of this egg-shaped basin. And when they converged at the far end, then they produced a counter wave which moved back in the direction of the inflowing water, which was in this instance about four meters high, full of mud and rocks and things, and therefore exerted a counter pressure against the incoming water and the egg-shaped holding basin held. And the experts were absolutely dumbfounded. Why should it have done this? And they then asked him, where did you get the idea for this basin? And Victor said, well, a common chicken told me how to do it. And finally, when uh, they calculated the strength of the wall statically, uh, they were found to be 12 times stronger than they need have been in order to resist the inflow of water and to be able to support the basin, uh, the sides of the basin, when it was full. So this log flume is an example of how we might construct systems for moving water where there is a continual alternation of movement, of swaying movement, with different vortical flows so that the water is able to regenerate itself and to cool itself. Preferably, these should be enclosed so that there is also no access to, to the water from the sun and uh, from, from extra too, too much heat. They timed a block of wood flowing from the holding basin down to the mill in the early morning when the water temperatures were about eight or nine degrees and it took 29 minutes to cover the distance. Later in the afternoon, they got the same block of wood over the same distance and the water temperature had by this time risen to about 14 or 15 degrees and the wood, block of wood took 40 minutes to cover the distance. So that it shows that with increasing heat, water flows more slowly. So this process was employed in his log flumes and it is a basis by which we could redesign any new water conduits which have to be constructed in this country. There are other systems which probably could be used to improve uh, what is there already and that is the uh, building in or incorporation of veins in, so we say, an open channel which would cause the, the water to rotate as soon as it hit, it hit them, that it would m make the water rotate or make a double spiral movement um, down the center of uh, the channel, which would again allow water at least to breathe and, and reoxygenate itself and to cool itself to a certain extent. But this, the, the flowing in straight trapezoid channels, which is the general system of moving water according to modern hydraulic theory, um, physically kills water until what arrives at the other end, the point of use, is virtually a water corpse, apart from the fact that uh, it's also been chlorinated. And uh, the chlorine, while it does remove bacteria and other sort of unwelcome organisms, uh, will also finally s sterilize the blood from people, of people who drink it all the time. Um, and research has shown that 18 uh, percent, percent of bladder cancers and 9% of um, intestinal cancers have been caused by, rectal cancers have been caused by the consumption of chlorinated water. So when we drink chlorinated water, we actually 
uh, harm our immune system and we drag it down to a level where it's more likely to fall, the, the body is more likely to fall victim to disease. Uh, so there's a great, there's, it's very important um, to begin to Im employ systems or to convert existing systems into ways of water, of moving water, which follows the law of uh, governing the flow of water, takes temperature into consideration, takes the, the alternating pulsating movement of water into consideration because this is a substance which is a living substance and it cannot impart life unless it is itself alive. So as something alive, we have to make sure that whatever system and whatever materials we choose to reticulate it allows water to breathe. They call me deranged. The hope is that they are right. It is of no greater or lesser import for another fool to wander the earth. But if I am right and science is wrong, then may the Lord God have mercy on mankind. These are the words of Victor Schauberger, a man born over 100 years ago into his role as a guardian of the earth. Among the magnificent Austrian forests, he grew up wanting only to become a forest warden like his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and his father before him. But life was to take Victor far from the peace and solitude of great mountains and forests. Instead, he was to lead the struggle to preserve the earth, the forests and rivers, attacking the exploitation of nature as early as the 1920s. Nature was his teacher. Through an understanding of nature's principles, seen in the flowing motion of water, he gave the world a vision of how technology could be transformed to render free, non-polluting energy for our use. He warned of the consequences facing humanity if the present death-oriented technology continues. He died, betrayed by the same powers who promised to make his dreams a reality commercial gangsters who take all and give nothing back to the world. When a man dies, the bell tolls. When the forest dies, and with it a whole people perishes, not a finger is lifted. It is known that for the death of a people, the death of a forest has preceded it. All across our planet, the forests are being destroyed at a frightening rate. From the Amazon to Sumatra, from Siberia to Australia, from Alaska to California, the great virgin forests are rapidly vanishing, the victims of logging, acid rain, and drought. Only 50 years ago, this part of California was a vast primeval redwood forest, truly paradise on earth. Today, less than 4% remains, and every day, more of these ancient giants are felled. Even our national parks are dying of atmospheric pollution. Soon, nothing of nature's beauty will remain for our children. It was in such a paradise that Victor Schauberger spent his childhood at home in the forest. Even the family motto, faithful to the silent forests, 
echoed the deep respect the forest wardens once held for the trees. From an early age, he was a keen and astute observer of nature. He learned directly from nature, closely studying the relationship between the earth, the trees, and water. But water, the lifeblood of the earth, became his consuming passion, and he set out to discover its laws and character, to learn the secrets of its power. Far from being merely an inorganic substance, Victor perceived water to be alive and with its own cycle of birth and transformation into higher forms of energy. He spent hours studying the flow of the natural waterways, how water moves in characteristic patterns, how water currents become stronger in the early hours of the morning when it is coolest, and particularly during full moon. He recalled the stories passed on from his ancestors who utilized their knowledge of water to transport logs down from the high forested mountains. They built constructions down the mountainsides which made the water flow in serpent-like spirals. I knew that my father transported hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of beechwood over long distances, never, however, during the day but at nights and generally when the moon shone. The reason for doing it this way, as my father often explained, was because water exposed to the sun's rays is tired and lazy and therefore curls up and sleeps. At night, however, and especially in moonlight, the water becomes fresh and lively and is able to support the logs of beech and silver fir, which are in fact heavier than water. By the end of the First World War, Victor became the wildmeister for a large wilderness area of almost untouched forest. But his employer, an Austrian prince, had problems. He needed money. He needed a way to transport timber down from the remote forest lands. It was Victor who solved the problem of transportation, building water chutes or flumes based on his own observations of water flow and the knowledge of his ancestors. Through observing the movement of a water snake undulating through the dam beside him came the key to his success with the flumes. By imitating its movements, a combination of horizontal and vertical curves, the water chutes carried the heavy logs effortlessly. A patent for the artificial channel for transporting logs was granted in 1931. It enables heavy logs to slide through specially designed double concave channels without becoming jammed. Experts came from all over Europe to study the constructions and Victor was offered a position with the government. Ironically, it was the success of Victor's invention that opened up the previously inaccessible high mountain forests to commercial exploitation. He was forced to witness the brutal damage inflicted on the land he loved by short-sighted greed. He had observed how the streams reacted when the trees were cut down. When a mountain spring is deprived of its natural protective shade and exposed to direct sunlight, it dries up and does not begin to flow again until the shade is restored. 
Some mountain springs disappear, never to return. It is a fact that our supply of mountain water is shrinking as the protective forests are being thinned and cut down. When the mountain slopes are bare, rivers turn into thin trickles or dry up completely. Or when it rains, they become raging torrents, bringing floods and devastation. The waterways become blocked with silt and debris, destroying the vitality of the water and choking the lifeblood of the earth. Combined with the damming and regulation of rivers, this begins the vicious cycle of drought and flood. Here's some soil from the forest floor, still underneath the trees. Very humus rich, it's a very alive soil. Type that can still sustain life. Here's soil that's left over from logging and general human habitation in the forest area here. See it's very hard and stony. Nothing really grows in it here. Uh, except maybe some bracken ferns and what have you, um, maybe some desert plants. So you, what you see here is the actual changeover from the rich life of the forest to the desert that the people have brought to their activities. Victor fought for years against unnatural methods of water regulation. Another patent, granted to him in 1929, was a construct for creating wild brooks and flow regulation. On the outside curve of the stream, concrete triangular structures are wedged into the soil to direct the water flow into the middle of the stream. Stones are placed on the opposite shore to protect it from erosion. Some of these ideas are now being used to try and save rivers and streams damaged by the effects of heavy logging. But back in the early 1920s, Victor's warnings fell on deaf ears. The large timber companies that sprang up everywhere, with encouragement from the state, had only one goal, the same goal they have today, to transform trees into money as quickly as possible. Angry and disillusioned, Victor resigned from his position and turned away to continue his explorations of the mysteries of water alone. Far back in history, there is evidence that men who have attempted to solve the riddle of water have been bitterly attacked. If the riddle surrounding the origins of water were solved, it would be possible to make as much pure water available as required in any location. In this way, vast areas of desert would become fertile. The concept of unrestricted production and cheap machine power is so revolutionary that the way of life all over the world would experience a change. As Victor carefully watched the flowing of water, the infinite patterns formed by its streaming, he became more and more aware of the significance of the vortex as nature's motion towards growth and life. The vortex, or spiral, is the underlying pattern which permeates our universe, a pattern formed by two opposing forces
which is made visible in the substance of water. All life moves between two polarities. Without opposite poles, there can be no attraction and no repulsion. Without attraction and repulsion, there can be no movement. And without movement, no life. All that lives moves between an upward spiral toward growth and purification, or downwards through deterioration and degeneration towards death. But within nature, both forces always work in cooperation with each other. The form of motion which creates, develops, purifies and grows is the harmonious hyperbolic spiral. The geometric spiral, which is the pattern of the galaxies in space. The basis of all planetary movement. The pattern underlying all forms of life. The natural flow of water, of blood and sap. In nature, we always find an open system, never a return to the same condition, as the spiral clearly shows. The purifying power of the vortex revealed itself to Victor while sitting beside an Austrian lake on a hot summer day. Suddenly, he noticed with surprise that the water of the lake was beginning to move in peculiar spiral whirls. Tree trunks embedded in the sand, were pulled loose and carried by the flow in a sort of spiral dance. As the speed of the circling water increased, they were drawn closer and faster toward the middle of the lake. Once they reached the center, the trunks tilted up and were sucked under with great force. None of the trees resurfaced. Shortly afterward, the lake calmed down but then the bottom of the lake started rumbling and suddenly a spout as high as a house shot up out of its center with a thundering noise, spinning upon itself and overflowing from the top like a fountain. Then, just as suddenly, the spout collapsed, sending waves to splash against the shore. Victor had witnessed how a lake without fresh water coming into it can spontaneously renew itself through the power of the archetypal spiral. On another occasion, Victor was watching the spiraling flight of an eagle over a lake, suddenly dropping to be off with a fish in his talons. How he could catch fish without ever touching the water was a mystery. But as he watched, the eagle flew upwards, describing an ever-decreasing spiral. What happened next was so unbelievable that Victor almost fell out of the tree. Fish in the lake were spiraling upward, just like the bird above. One after the other, like pearls on a string, they came closer to the surface. Because the spiral was becoming smaller, some of the fish were crowded together at the surface. A dark shadow fell over the spot, a little flash, and the eagle took off with its prey. As he studied the mysterious qualities of water, Victor perceived it to be a substance which is alive, which is born from underground springs and develops to maturity. Its mysteries are similar to those of blood in the human body. Healthy blood is the carrier of life in the human organism, and living water plays the same role in the body of the earth.
but when treated improperly or polluted, water loses its vitality and can die. It was clear to Victor that the continuation of life on Earth depended totally on preserving the purity of our water. The natural course of water is a rhythmical meandering. This principle becomes manifest in all dimensions of flowing water, from the small trickle with its little rhythmical loops, through rivers whose loops grow ever larger, to the loops of the ocean currents surrounding the earth. As long as man had not disturbed the organic balance and Mother Earth was able to donate her blood, the water, to provide a healthy vegetation, there was no need to construct artificial canals since the Earth had already provided waterways. Today, however, when water is diverted from its source, all of life is dependent upon stale, unhealthy water. It is desperately important to rediscover nature's ways if human beings, animals, and the land are to be saved from decline and the earth is not to die from thirst. The most convincing and obvious proof that life is gradually perishing can be found in the streams and rivers of our industrial areas, which are already so polluted that they are no longer rivers, but streaming sewers. Here, the Chicago River is not only a chemical cesspool, but its flow has been artificially reversed. As a result of such widespread pollution, our underground water, including most private wells and the springs which are the source of our water, are becoming contaminated and unfit to drink. They are now poisoning people, just as they have killed the fish which only a few years ago used to splash in them. When Victor prophesied early this century that a bottle of water would soon be more expensive than wine, he was ridiculed by all the people around him. But drinking water is more expensive than gasoline today, and countless millions in the world are dependent on bottled water to survive. The droughts are getting worse. The underground water tables are falling lower than ever. Back in the early 1930s, Victor set to work to build a machine that would produce good drinking water artificially that would copy the natural processes of bubbling mountain spring water. His first plan for a water purifier developed into this egg-shaped apparatus for what became known as biosynthesis. In this process, small amounts of trace minerals and carbon dioxide are added to the water, which is then energized in darkness set into a harmonious spiral motion by the specially shaped agitator. The dynamics of the water flow are simplified in this diagram. A cooling coil provides a temperature control and the vessel is enclosed in an insulating shell to contain the implosion energy within. The egg shape, another of nature's secrets, was chosen by Victor as a perfect form for a vortex chamber. An egg has a perfect curve for sustaining the momentum of a vortex within it. A central theme of Victor's thinking was a cycloid space curve observed in the motion of the planets as they orbit around the sun while at the same time spinning on their own axes. They move in open spirals or eggways as Victor called them. 
The spiral pipe incorporates this characteristic. It is conical and generally egg-shaped, except for an inner bend which causes the water to roll inwards, as shown in Victor's egg geometry. Word soon spread that Victor Schauberger could make living water, and people streamed to his home to try it, with excellent results. He became known as the water magician. The vitality of water can be measured by its electrical potential. Every drop manifests an electromagnetic field, as does every body on Earth. The structure of moving water consists of layers, and from the outside layer towards the center, there is an increased density and an increase in electrical potential. The naturally spiraling movement of water in rivers and streams builds up the electrical charge. But when water is forced to flow through rigid channels and metallic pipes, it short circuits and discharges its life force. Bacteria thrive in this medium, which is then treated chemically with the end result of water, which for all intents and purposes, is dead. As we can no longer gain any life force from such devitalized water, Victor designed special spiral pipes to protect and preserve the living water. In this patent for the conduction of water, curved wedges are attached to the inside of pipes to direct the water into an inward spiral. Victor believed that the damage to water caused by our iron and concrete pipes leads to cancer and other illnesses so prevalent today. In this patent, a device is placed in the pipe or tube to create a vitalizing whirling motion of the water. In this patent, granted in 1958, the tube shown crosswise is egg-shaped with an inner bend and is wound in a spiral fashion to reduce the loss of flow speed. As he struggled with the problems involved in rejuvenating water, Victor was also deeply concerned with the principles behind modern technology, which is both incredibly wasteful and destructive, and which ultimately threatens all life on our planet. As mentioned earlier, there exist two forms of motion within nature, one that builds up and creates, and the other that breaks down and destroys. This depends on whether the driving force is centripetal, moving towards the center, or centrifugal, moving towards the outside. The centrifugal force leads to destruction, dissolution, and gravity. The centripetal force leads to growth, enrichment, and levity. The ancient symbol of the swastika expresses this dynamic dualism which is true on every level of manifestation. Thus we have spirit and matter, activity and passivity, life flow and life withdrawal, evolution and destruction, implosion or explosion. In nature, there is a continuous switch from one movement to the other. But if development is to occur, then the movement of growth must be predominant. Our technology recognizes only one type of motion, the centrifugal force, which leads to heat, combustion and explosion through friction and pressure. Through concentrating on the destructive force of explosion technology, 
we see the breaking down and burning of our fossil fuels and other resources, the disintegration of our environment, and the ultimate manifestation of the death technology with nuclear reactors spewing out radioactive waste and other poisonous residues. Instead of nature becoming a garden of beautifully blossoming flowers, it becomes a filthy dirt heap of ugliness and death. On the other hand, the implosion technology of Victor Schauberger is creative, purifying, and constructive. The centripetal motion of the vortex is a suction force which creates an intense vacuum. It cools rather than heats and increases the electrical potential of the water. During hurricanes, twisters, and tornadoes, the same spiraling suction forces are at work and they can easily lift tons of seawater, whole buildings, or even railroad trains which lie in their path. Imagine what could be achieved if it were possible to produce them by mechanical means. Again, by imitating nature, Victor developed his suction turbine, or trout turbine, named after his observations of trout moving upstream against the current. The fish is a natural vortex machine. Its open mouth creates a vacuum which propels it forward, and by means of its gills and body shape, a vortex is created around its entire body. Victor described one occasion on a clear moonlit night when he watched a large trout move into a whirlpool at the foot of a waterfall. As he watched, the trout floated out of this vortex and up the waterfall, as if drawn by an invisible force. In his trout turbine, or implosion motor, water, or air, is guided through a vortex funnel and through specially designed spiral curved pipes toward a central point which forms a strong vortexian motion, condensing and cooling the water. In these pipes, the resultant suction reduces friction and a biological vacuum, or negative pressure, is created and energy is increased. Totally opposed to the plundering of fossil fuels such as oil from the earth, Victor had said his motor produces its own driving source through the diamagnetic use of water and air. It does not require any other fuel such as coal, oil, or uranium since it can produce its own energy by biological means in unlimited amounts, almost without cost. This power generator was claimed to have created a strong enough electrical field to light up the surroundings like bright daylight. In the Wasserfaden, or water thread experiment, originally carried out by Lord Kelvin, repeated by Victor and his son Walter, and now demonstrated publicly by Retta and Walter Baumgartner, the electrical potential of moving water is made visible to the onlooker. The electrical potential of a very fine stream of water is collected to produce sparks and light up a neon bulb. To understand the water thread experiment, let's take a look at this simple diagram. At the top, we have a water tank. It has two nozzles, allowing two streams of water to drop down into two bowls or buckets. That's the basic. Then inserted in that, first we have two copper discs each one with a hole in the center to allow the stream to go through. 
and two copper plates, one in each bowl, receiving the stream at the bottom. The copper plate on one side is connected by a copper wire to the copper disc on the other side, and vice versa, with no connection between the wires. When the streams start to flow, the first thing that's noticed is that the water begins to curve up and tries to reach back to the copper disc. That is, it takes on a levity function and goes counter to gravity. When this experiment is performed in the dark, if a neon bulb is put into the stream, contrary to known laws of electrostatics, it will light up. If a vacuum tube is connected either to the copper plate or the copper disc of either side, it will glow brightly, the brightness depending on the quality or liveliness of the water. If one touches the copper disc, they will certainly get a small shock. This same principle was used by Victor for experimental flying discs, which were successfully flown during his research in World War II. In the implosion motor, a diamagnetic field was developed which made the lifting power possible. On the 19th of February, 1945, near Prague, the first test of an unmanned flying disc took place. In three minutes, it climbed to a height of 15,000 meters and attained a horizontal speed of 2,200 kilometers per hour. It could hover motionless in the air and could fly as fast backwards as forwards. This flying disc had a diameter of 50 meters. Another model based on Victor's prototype was built by a German engineer, Hermann Klaas, in 1941, who reported, in all truth, this invention flew with almost unbelievable success. It climbed straight up into the air so suddenly that, unfortunately, it hit the workshop ceiling and crashed to the ground in pieces. In 1934, Hitler had specially requested to meet Victor and was well informed of his earlier work. Later, during the war, he was given the choice either to develop machines for the Third Reich or he would be hanged. Understandably, he chose the work. And during this time, the Flying Saucer Project was initiated. During this period, consideration was also given to biological submarine design. Victor was against using biotechnology for destructive purposes and probably never released his full designs to the Nazis. However, this may have given rise to the rumors later on that Hitler had escaped to South America in a flying saucer or submarine, that his death in the Berlin bunker was a fabrication. Whatever the truth, both the Russians and the Americans were highly interested in Victor's work. After the war, the Russians ransacked his apartment and then blew it up to prevent the Allies from gleaning any overlooked secrets. He was confined by the Americans in what was called protective custody for almost a year and was forbidden to take up any further research into the atomic energy fields. He had warned about the danger of nuclear power and called the splitting of the atom an offense against nature.
resources left to him, Victor concentrated on agricultural problems. His work was devoted to increasing the Earth's vitality and to encourage the buildup and preservation of the insulating skin of the Earth. He condemned all kinds of artificial fertilizer which exhaust the soil and upsets the delicate balance of nature. Victor had never turned his back on the ancient farming traditions. Rather, he enjoyed the company of old farmers and his simple country life. He had said, the old farmer was, for the clod of the earth, both its priest and doctor. In Schoberger's writings, he relates one ancient practice that had survived up to his time, and that was called the practice of clay singing. Uh, when Schauberger first heard about this, he went over to visit an old farmer, and he heard the farmers singing, and he thought the farmer had gone mad. He went and checked it out, and he saw him stirring just clear water in a barrel. Get stirred, get a vortex going in one direction, then reverse it the other way. And he would throw like little handfuls of loamy soil in every now and then. And on the counterclockwise stir, he would sing upscale from very deep bass up to high falsetto and then reverse that on the clockwise going downscale. And then this water was taken and sprayed with like a broom like this and it would be sprayed around on the land and allowed to dry. And this would leave like a very fine crystalline structure which would help charge up the land organically. This spade was based on Victor Schauberger's agricultural theories. It's a solid oak spade coated with copper. Now, Victor noticed that with the decline of the ancient agricultural methods, like the use of the wooden plow, that there came a concomitant decrease in the fertility of the soil. The soil would dry out and not sustain life. Now, Victor discovered that this was due to the iron plows that were coming into use, cutting the magnetic lines of the earth, and it would the earth would lose its charge, the water levels would drop. It was just generally detrimental to the plants. And Victor felt this was a serious problem that had to be looked into. And in his researches, he discovered that copper, when used on farming implements, greatly increased the fertility of the soil and allowed it to remain rich and moist and supportive of life. This patent for Victor's copper plow was granted in 1950. Many of these golden plows, as they became known, were manufactured, but pressure from the fertilizer industry halted their production. He also worked on this model for a spiral plow, which would move the earth in a centripetal motion, copying the work of a mole as it burrows underground. This type of implement opened up a whole new field of biological machinery for agriculture. But despite his wonderful discoveries, and with increasing bitterness, Victor realized that all of his attempts to alert the establishment to the breakdown of the ecological order were falling on deaf ears. He had fought all his life for the water, the forests, and the earth itself, but had in return been attacked, persecuted, and impoverished. His health was also failing. It was then that two Americans appeared and offered unlimited funds if he would travel to America and impart his knowledge for the good of humanity.
or so they said. Victor and his son were flown to Texas and taken to the solitude of the desert, far from his beloved forests and streams. There was no communication with the outside world. The post was censored. The funds never materialized, and Project Implosion, as it was called, became a nightmare experience. Finally, after being tricked into signing everything over to these men, Victor was permitted to return to Austria. Five days after he returned home, he died in despair, saying, They took everything from me. Everything. I don't even own myself. But his message of survival is more urgent than ever before. The only way left is a return to nature. Elements die as men die on account of the corruption in them. As water at its death, as it were, consumes and devours its own fruit, so does the earth its own fruits. Whatever is born from it returns to it again, is swallowed up and lost, just as the time passed is swallowed up by yesterday's days and nights, the light or darkness of which we shall never see again. It is no weightier today than yesterday, not even by a single grain, and will, after a thousand years, be of the same weight still. As it gives forth, so in the same degree it consumes. The death of the water, however, is in its own proper element, and that great terminus and center of water, the sea, wherein the rivers and whatever else flows into it die and are consumed as wood in the fire. Rivers, indeed, are not the element of water, but the fruit of that element, which is the sea. From this they derive their origin, and in this they receive both their life and their death. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, you can do three simple things right now. One, you can subscribe to Permaculture Freedom Podcast if you haven't yet. Number two, leave a short review for us on iTunes. And third, share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, take care my friend.